0: Turn to Philippians chapter two. I'll just be—I'll just be up front with you. This is not going to be your favorite sermon <laughs> that I've ever that I've ever preached. I know it's hard for you to imagine because all of them are, but this one will not be your favorite sermon that I've that I've preached. Let me just read to you the the, the first line. Okay, so if you've If you've stayed with us in Philippians at all, or at least looked ahead a little bit, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So Philippians 2, starting in verse 14, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is not a tremendously easy text to work through. It's easy in concept, but it's not easy as far as the application, because are we not complainers by nature? If you'll give me just a second to bring this up, it has disappeared from here. And the last thing you need is for me to go completely off notes today, because there's no telling what might come out. So, Philippians 2... Long, awkward pause here while I find the peas. If it'll open. Okay. All right, we're good. Okay, so do all things without grumbling and complaining. Let me back up just a little bit to Philippians 2.12. Last week, he says, Therefore... My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So in keeping with working out your salvation, when we're doing these things, when we're living for the glory of God, when we're... Living in accordance with the Scriptures, when we're obeying what the Word of God has set up as parameters to rightly represent Him by the followers of Christ, that is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And He says, "You do the work; you do the work with fear and trembling, but you also do it without grumbling and complaining." I don't know if you've ever been around a, just a complainer, a negative Nancy, someone that's just so pessimistic. I mean, they're humdrum. It's like you're hanging out with Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, and you're like, dude, you've got to, you've got to take a pill that lightens your mood. I'm not saying drugs. I'm saying something that will make you, make you feel better. Okay, I'm not promoting uppers here or anything like that. I'm just saying we've been around those type of people, you know, and it's and it's hard sometimes being around someone that's that's very negative. And I've been around Christians that are just very negative. You know, they always find the worst in something as opposed to the best in something. Now, I'll just go ahead and say this. I don't know, maybe you've been around the super happy campers. I boasted in Chick-fil-A a a few weeks ago, but let me let me take a few shots here. Sometimes I drive away and I grip my teeth and say they're all a bunch of liars. My pleasure, my foot. You know, it's like liars, right? So, so. There's this side, the pendulum swings so much that we're so happy and everything's our pleasure in the Christian life. And that's just not true, right? That's just not true because we're human, we're flesh. So I want to I say that at the beginning because I want you to understand that this is a tall order. I don't want you to walk away. This is a part of my objective. Here's what I don't want to, to pursue as an objective is that you walk away saying, you know what? I'm an absolute failure, because I, 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 I've blown this day after day after day to be sure we are failures, to be sure we are incomplete, to be sure we are sinners, but that's not the point here. The point is not to tell you how poorly you do at something, but to provide a perspective as to why grumbling and complaining is not a path we want to be on. Because if we're honest, it's kind of the sin that we sweep under the rug, it's kind of the sin that we say, well, that's really not a big deal. I haven't murdered someone. I might complain a little bit. I might grumble here and there. You know, My dog likes to use the bathroom on the same place in the rug and I wanna punt him into the neighbor's yard and I complain about it, but I'm not murdering somebody. I haven't killed anybody. I don't beat my wife. My wife doesn't beat me. I don't slap around my children. I don't do all those things. So we categorize these sins and if I'm honest and probably if you're honest, Complaining is either way down here or it's really not even on your radar. Like, eh, who thinks about that? You know, my boss isn't fair to me. I'm gonna complain about that. You know, well, I have a right to complain because I'm in, I'm in these bad conditions. So I complain a little bit. This is not a hard-to-interpret passage. I mean, the Bible's being very clear here. It says don't grumble or complain about anything. And we'll get into more of that but this can be very daunting. I know as I'm studying this, the Lord's just putting a finger on my life over and over again, and in a loving way saying, hey, you fail at this. Because I've always kind of carried myself as a non-complainer. I'm kind of an optimistic type person. I'm the kind of person, I think, a lot of the times that he jumps off a building and halfway down he says, hey, so far so good, right? The, 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 the optimist But what I want to do is I want to show that complaining is not a benign offense. It's not a benign offense to God. It's not something to be swept under the rug. It's not something to dismiss and say, well, there are far worse sins to be engaged in other than than complaining and grumbling and disputing. But Paul doesn't just say that. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And he gives kind of some weight behind that and some reason and rationale behind it. He says, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of, and that's the key. You, as the children of God, have been separated. You've been made holy and charged to pursue holiness. You are set apart for God and his good pleasure and his good will as his children. And what he does is he sets you in the middle of this broken, fallen world. Now, we're broken and fallen as well, but we shine as lights in the midst of darkness. So there's a clear distinction, or should be a clear distinction, a visible distinction between us and the rest of the world, but we are right in the middle of it. You think living with your spouse as two Christians is difficult. Consider the fact that we are coexisting in a world as Children of light and children of darkness. And that is a recipe for war. And that's what it is. So, of course, it's difficult. That's that's exactly what it is. And he says, when you do things without grumbling or disputing, when you're working out your salvation and your attitude is fear and trembling with a reverence and a respect for the things of God, And with the right disposition of these things matter more than anything, and then you do that without grumbling and complaining, he says, that's when you shine the brightest when you're in the midst of all this darkness. Because anyone can complain. In a broken, fallen world, that's our natural tendency is to complain about how horrible things are. And we probably don't even realize how bad things really are. Because we can't fully understand the destruction and the effect of sin. We can't see it as God sees it. We have limited understanding of those things, so we're very feeble and very weak in our understanding of these things. But, but, but Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is laboring to teach us these things. He's saying, look, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So there's this admonishment. There's this exhortation. Hey, be children of the light. He starts by saying, complaining is no benign offense, but rather it is a dangerously malignant and regularly dismissed or overlooked issue for the followers of Christ. So... Maybe you've arrived at this text and said, complaining's not that big of a deal. It's not, maybe you're interested in what I have to say this week because how, how is he going to show me that this is kind of a, a big deal? And I think that's a part of my job. A part of my job is showing what the Lord has shown me, what I think the text is saying, and I want that to bleed over onto us and that we can work out our salvation, not only with fear and trembling, but without grumbling and complaining. But complaining is a normative pattern of life. Now what I want to do is I want to kind of read off a list that I comprised or compiled just in case there's someone that thinks well, I'm not really a complainer. Just listen to some of these and if the shoe fits then you wear it. So whether you consider yourself a complainer or not, let's kind of peel back some of these layers, all right? And let's see if this is if this is you because it's definitely me. All right, I'm not asking you to raise your hand or anything like that if you'd like to, go ahead, that's fine. It's not like we don't think that of you anyway, but here we go. So What about this? We want kids that parent themselves and they give us space. So, what do we do? We complain. And our kids, and I know some of y'all don't have kids, but when you do, trust me, you will know. We want kids that parent themselves and give us space. So, we complain. We want parents that don't hover over us all the time. Some of you are looking and laughing. I get it. Yeah, I was there. Would you give me a break? You know, I want to breathe. So there's some complaining, and it seems benign, doesn't it? Ah, it's not a big deal. We're laughing about it. We're, and I, Do you understand what's happening now? We're, we're reflecting on our complaint. We're reflecting on our sinful patterns of behavior, and it's given us cause for humor. <laughs> you know, and it's like, we're, we're so messed up, right? We are so twisted. You know, this is... This is, hey, depravity of man dumped out all over your head. Here you are. You are failures and wretched sorry people, right? So not that I want you to go away thinking that, but that's, this, this is the reality that we're coming to. It's like, oh, I'm guilty of this, and I've just read two of them. What about this? We want bosses who accommodate our preferences or would just ease up a little bit. I think we could probably all identify with that. So we complain about these things and I just wish he'd back off, or I just wish he'd be different or not say this or not do that. So we bring our complaints. We may not say it to someone else. We may keep it to ourselves, but it's still a heart and a disposition of complaint and at the end of the day, discontent. We want jobs that bring us more satisfaction, don't we? I mean, most people, if not all people in this room, most people anyway, can can resonate with that. We want jobs that bring us more satisfaction. We want more satisfaction in life. We want spouses that make our lives easier, we want husbands. Husbands want wives who will respect them more. Wives want husbands that will appreciate them more. And that's, that's, that's coming straight out of, my, out of my relationship with my wife, straight out of Birchfield, okay, straight out of Ridge Creek Estates, straight out of 212. That, that's exactly what's in my mind, is I want my wife to respect me. And that's not a, that's not a bad thing, but when I'm pushed over to the realm of complaint and discontentment in my marriage and discontentment in what God has put together, then I've crossed a line. I've crossed a line because I'm seeking satisfaction in something that wasn't meant to give me true and lasting satisfaction. So I'm sinning in my complaint. We want dogs, I've mentioned this, that will stop relieving themselves on the same place under the table every stinking day of their natural life. We want neighbors who would mind their own business, quite frankly, we want neighbors who would cut their yard because it just doesn't look good in our neighborhood for someone to have a yard that's three inches tall. We want gas prices and food prices and taxes not to be so high, right? We want those things. We complain about it. Man, did you see how much gas prices have gone up? You know, we, we arrive at a, at, a, at a gas station and my goodness gracious, you know, five cents, 20 cents, 30 cents. This is ridiculous. This is outrage, you know? We're sitting there giving the, giving the machine the business because we're so mad. You know, this is, this is so dumb. We're ready to fight somebody over the gas prices. I've seen it. I mean, I've been upset about gas prices. I've been upset about taxes. I've been upset about these things. So what do we do? We complain about it. That's what we do. Not that it can fix anything, but that's our default response because we're wicked. Because that's our default mode. Even if you're an optimist, you're a pessimist. Even optimistic folks complain. We want the road construction to be finished. Anybody who has any kind of commute every day, and you have to hit any kind of traffic because it takes them 17 day, seventeen years to finish traffic, evidently, or to finish uh, road construction around here, you understand the sentiment. I don't personally have road rage. I'm sure some of you do, and I've known people that have road rage. It's an ugly thing, right? Joey has road rage. Maybe I've been in the truck when Joey has road rage, yes, uh, and there was a call to repentance, We complain about this. Someone's driving too slow. That's a reason to complain. I'm stuck in traffic. I've got to be somewhere. That's a reason to complain. My wife has said to me a number of times, I don't have road rage, but I am impatient. And we'll be, we don't necessarily have to be anywhere at any particular time. I'm just trying to get there as fast as I can. And when we see family, we have to drive a long way. So I'm driving and we'll get stuck in Atlanta traffic every stinking time. And she's like, you just don't trust the Lord. And then I'm wrestling with complaining against my wife because God has given me this helpmate that is disagreeable with me. And so I've got this problem, right? It's just complaint after complaint after complaint. We want people to find another way. We, we want, uh, okay, so let me move past that When I said that one already. We want mom to cook our favorite meal. <laughs> we want better food to be in our pantry. How many times have my kids come to the pantry? We don't have anything. Oh, you have nothing, Right? I'll slap something together that's edible, and I'll show you that you have something. But how many times do kids or adults come to the pantry? and we've got nothing. And I do the same thing. If we're out of Pop-Tarts, it's, it's horrible. We have nothing in this house. But all we really are lacking are Pop-Tarts. That's kid food, so it's off limits for me, says my wife. But what she doesn't know doesn't hurt her. So when mom or dad or whoever to cook our favorite meal, want to buy the right groceries, so we complain because we don't have our favorite food. It's not pizza day at school, or it's not this day at school, or I've got homework. So we complain. We want freedom from financial problems, don't we? So we complain about our position. We complain that we're not making enough money or whatever because we've got these financial problems. Maybe we complain because we've got to penny pinch or we've got to create a budget. We can't just live as we want to live and spend how we want to spend. And it goes back to, I'm discontent with my job. I'm discontent with my salary. I'm ultimately discontent with God's sovereignty. We just want to be left alone. We have a long list of wants, don't we? We are a people of preference. Preferences aren't necessarily bad but they can become idols in our life. Let me go ahead and boast in Travis and Caroline here for a second. They've been promised that this pool that they're having put in their backyard would be ready like 2012 or something like that. And more times than not, the folks who say they're going to be there to actually work on the pool don't even show up. Now, they've, I'm, maybe you've grumbled and complained some, but in the conversations I've had, at least with Travis, you know, kudos to you, brother, because Travis, he's not just flying off the handle. You know, if I looked like Travis and had his stature and, 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 and could look like I could scare somebody, I'd be putting it on those guys, you know. But God didn't make me that way, you know. He gave me chicken legs and, 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 and I'm not menacing, and that's okay, you know. So, um, but Travis has self control, and Travis, maybe he's grumbled some, but I haven't seen it much. But I would think, I and mean, that's a good reason to complain. You're paying these people to do a job, they say they'll do it by this time, and it just hasn't gotten done, and it's way past deadline. You think that's a justifiable reason to complain. Well, it's not. It's not. You may say to yourself, if God doesn't want us complaining, then why did he make things so hard in the first place? Why did he allow for things to get this way in the first place? And there's a whole theological thing to that. I get that. But just take that for what it is without me having to explain everything. So why are things the way they are? Why would God have this expectation? We know that sin entered the world and God still has his expectations, his expectations of holiness, his expectations of perfection that we can't meet. But there's an ideal there that he has not changed. There's an ideal that was pre-fall that has not changed, but it can only now be met in Jesus Christ. So we've done it to ourselves. We complain. And church folks are the worst. This is not what I've heard here. But this is what I've heard or I know of church people to say. I've been very careful with the things that I've written down so as to not say that anybody is guilty of this. If you are, then maybe this is just an indirect way for me to stick it to you without me knowing. So here we go. So we're the worst at making our preferences known and even much more so about making our disdain for other preferences known. Preaching, too long, too many big words, not enough illustrations or stories. You're not funny enough maybe you 're too funny that wasn 't deep enough i don 't feel that i 'm being fed. That was too deep. You need to keep it on a lower shelf. These are things that that I, some of the things that i 've heard in, in times and don 't get me wrong there are There are ways to communicate and ways to to communicate with an audience and understand your context. I know all those things, but the burden is on both sides. The honest is on both sides both both the person who's, who's, who's giving something, who's offering gifts or abilities, and those who are sitting as the recipients. They have to be careful with their expectations and their preferences and to not build up standards that are really unrealistic and judgmental or preferential and, worst of all, idolatrous. Here's some popular complaints within church culture. Music, too loud, not loud enough. Too contemporary, not traditional enough. Those songs are too repetitious and the Bible says avoid vain repetition. I've heard that one a few times in my life. By the way, vain is different than vain is vain is the prohibition there. If anyone ever says avoid vain repetition, repetition isn't bad. It's vain repetition that is bad. It's fruitless, meaningless arbitrary repetition. If I say the name of Jesus 47 times in my prayer, that's not a bad, time, bad, bad thing. If I say the name of Christ calling out to Jesus 47 times in my prayer and my motive behind it is pure and good, it is God-honoring and exalting to His Son. So vain is the prohibition, not repetition. That's for anyone in the cyber world audience listening that that may help. Those songs are too high to sing. Those songs are too low to sing. That song's for a girl. That song's more for a boy. That song's not theological enough. Church environment. It's too cold in the sanctuary. It's too hot in the sanctuary. I can't hear because there's kids over there. Not that anyone has said that, but that happens sometimes. Why did she not take her baby out when her baby was throwing a fit? I've been in in church services where people... Have gotten visibly angry because a mama who has their baby in there, which is perfectly wonderfully great, the baby's crying because guess what? That's what babies do. Maybe not sweet Eleanor, but that's what babies do, right? So the mom doesn't rush like it's a 911 emergency to take the baby out. And so Susie or Johnny's like, I can't believe that. They're quenching the Spirit of God we complain. Church folks, non-church folks, we're complainers. I think I've labored this point enough. So the culture of complaining reaches much further back in time than your commute to work this past Friday. History is riddled with the complaints of God's children. Riddled. It's not something new. It's not that somehow we've grown discontent as, as, as sin has been in the world longer. It's been this way forever, it's been this way forever. Jonah complained about God allowing the Ninevites to repent. He complained, first of all, about the call to go and tell them to repent. He gets there, and God's given them a chance to repent, and he starts complaining again. Right? The, the, the story of the prodigal son, the son finally comes home, the older brother starts complaining, well, you didn't give me this or that. You didn't give me a ring. You didn't give me new sandals or a robe or throw a party or kill a fattened calf. You didn't do that for me. He's complaining. I know it's a parable, but the principle's there. He's complaining. Complainers have been around for thousands of years. 1 Corinthians 10.10, in reference to the Israelites, when they are told, do not grumble as some of them, Paul says, do not grumble as some of them did. Who is he referring to, the Israelites? Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. See, the children of Israel complained about the better conditions that there were in Egypt than there were en route to the promised land. They have been delivered from bondage, and they're grumbling and disputing. They're complaining in the wilderness. They're complaining that that God is providing food, but it's not the food that they want. God is providing manna, but they're tired of eating manna. They're tired of eating bread. Well, God, we wish that you would sustain our lives because we're completely dependent on you, but we'd rather it be a different way with maybe a Pop-Tart instead of this manna. That'd be great, but that's that's how God chose to do it was through manna. So they complain, totally losing perspective because they're complainers, just like you and just like me. I mean, they were being whipped, mistreated, and God delivers them. God, appointed man Moses, is taking them. Not, he didn't just move them out of Egypt. He's taking them to a better place. You would think the woods is a better place than Egypt. For some of you, like myself, we like the outdoors. The woods is a great place. But he wasn't just taking them to the woods and leaving them there. He was taking them to the promised land. And guess what happens? Spies are sent to the promised land. Joshua, Caleb, some of those other guys come back. Hey, there's giants there. And God says, you can take them. Mm. <laughs> there's more grumbling, more complaining, but they're big. They're big and we don't, wanna, we don't wanna mix in with that. So this is how God responded to their complaining. So I wanted you to first see that complaining is a part of our fall, a part of our brokenness. It's what, it's what we do, right? And it's not okay, but it's what we do. And it's what people have always done since Genesis 3, since the fall. But God has a position towards it. He doesn't just say, don't complain. He has a response to complaining. If you're thinking in Deuteronomy chapter 1, 19, the people grumbled upon entering the, Canaan, uh, the land of Canaan with the giants. And let me read to you this little portion of it. Actually, let me turn there. And I want to read this to you just so you can understand how God is feeling about this. This is how God responds. He doesn't do this every time. He's gracious, but he gets his point across. And this is all under the objective of showing you that, that it's not a benign thing, complaining. It's malignant, and it's destructive, and God hates it. Listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 19. Let me just begin by reading in verse, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 1. I apologize. Deuteronomy 1, what I was explaining started in verse 19, but I'm going to read a little bit further down. Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you're trying to get there with me. Okay, so listen to this. I just want to start in verse 41. So they've complained... And this is where Moses writes about God's response to their complaining. This is how this is theological. This is us understanding the nature of God. When we see God move and act and respond and do things in the scriptures, that's God's way of teaching us about himself, about his nature. And it says this Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. So they're trying to have this about face. He said, every one of you fastened on fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up. All right, so now God has rebuked them and said, okay, well, we'll go. We'll go. All right. I threaten my son with a spanking. He gets real, real obedient, real fast. And so that's what they're doing. The Lord says, I'm I'm frustrated with you. My anger burns against you is exactly what he said over in verse 34, 35. My anger burns against you, so they say, okay, we're in trouble. We're in hot water. Let's let's ante up and let's do what we need to do. And this is how God responds. He says, do not go up. Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst. That's hardcore. He says, I won't be with you. You are my children. I have delivered you, but I will not be with you. He says, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in the hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as uh, uh, Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. Why? Because of their ungratefulness, because of their complaining. So complaining is no benign offense. So if you, like me, are accustomed to kind of sweeping under the rug and saying, well, there are worse things, just walk through the Bible and try to find how many times God says, I will not be with you. I will not be in your midst. This is a big deal. This is a huge, huge deal. It's a malignancy with destructive effects. It's not a benign offense. It's not a small issue. It's not a small sin. It's not what it's what Jerry Bridges would call a respectable sin, one of those that we put over here, because it's not as bad as this one. It's not as bad as this one. It's not rape. It's not murder. It's not incest. It's not these things. It's just, it's just complaining. It's just a complaint. Is there really this big moral issue when I want a Pop-Tart instead of a toaster strudel, and I complain because there's no Pop-Tarts and there's only toaster strudels? which are both fantastic, by the way, but kid food, so stay away. So is there really a big deal? Yeah, there's a big deal. There's a big deal. Why does he make it such a big deal? Because he says, you're the children of God, put in the midst of darkness, and your light needs to shine. You have a task, and it's not to be taken lightly. And grumbling and complaining, grumbling and disputing, what it does is it works counteractively against the purposes of God. May I suggest that complaining is the fruit of a root issue. Can I suggest that? It's the fruit of a root issue. Listen to this. Complaining is the physical manifestation of a discontented heart. Discontentment is the product of unbelief. Complaining is the physical manifestation of a discontented heart. And a discontented heart... Is the product of unbelief. Let me give you an example. Here's the complaint I don't make enough money. I don't make enough money. I'm complaining about that. I'm discontented with my lifestyle. Because I want to live a certain lifestyle. I want to drive certain vehicles. I want to have a certain size house. I want to have certain things. And in order to do that, I have to make enough money. But I don't make enough money. So I'm complaining about that because it doesn't serve my purpose. And therefore, my purpose isn't being served, so I'm discontented. But what's the unbelief? The unbelief, which is causing the discontentment, which is causing the complaints, because the discontentment and the complaint are the fruits of the root issue. The root issue is that Jesus, in your view, is not a greater treasure than worldly possessions. And that having Jesus is not more satisfying than having your stuff and your lifestyle. That's the root of complaint. And maybe now you can start to see as the layers pull back why it's such an offense to God, because that at the end of the day, discontentment is the cause behind complaining, and the cause behind discontentment is unbelief. It's dissatisfaction in the gospel. It's dissatisfaction in Jesus. It's dissatisfaction in our identity that the gospel has given us. And this applies to me on so many issues. You can take any item from the list that I started with, We walked through 20 or 30 or whatever we did. You can put any one of those in that little formula and say, what's the complaint? Where's the discontentment causing the complaint? What's the root issue? What's my belief or my unbelief? I encourage you, because it'll be fun, right? Go home, sit with your spouse, sit with your brother, sister, sit with your mom or dad, and just say, okay, here's my complaint. Where's that coming from? I'm discontent about something. I'm dissatisfied with something. And say, okay, well, what's the root of all that? And start exploring your unbelief. And it's painful. It's painful. But that's where we start to see why these things matter so much, because they're not benign issues. Let me tell you a few things that your complaining and my complaining implies, what it means. When you hear complaining from me or I hear complaining from you, beneath the surface... This is what we should be picking up on. This is the reality behind those things. Complaining implies that you live outside of reality. Do you not know what he's saying here? He says, You will be dropped right down in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation. Your light's amongst the wickedness. So, what should you expect from wicked people? Wicked acts. God-hating, hostility, hostility towards you, ultimately hostility towards God. That's what we should expect, but we don't live in that reality all the time. And complaining is a clear indication that you don't live in reality, that I don't live in reality. Am I going to complain about what a broken, fallen world has caused me as if it's not because it's broken and fallen, as if I'm missing the fact that, oh, this is what I should expect? Should I really expect something better, something bigger in this life? Should I really expect those things? And then we could get into the issue of do you actually believe that you deserve better things, which that's a whole nother fun, make you feel happy when you go home discussion. Complaining implies that you live outside of reality. The world is broken. The people are broken. The curse is real. People get sick. People die. Jobs don't offer satisfaction we desire. Marriages don't offer satisfaction that we desire. We don't make the money that we desire. We don't live where we want to live. We don't have all these things. And it's, Not meant to satisfy you anyway. And don't hear me saying that marriage is a bad thing, but it's not meant to fulfill you, is what I'm saying. Relationships outside of a relationship with Christ is not meant to be the end for you, the fullness of joy for you. That's Christ in a relationship with him. So complaining implies that you live outside of reality. Complaining conveys a distorted image of the gospel. It could insinuate that Jesus is not all that concerned for his children. Do you understand that? If complaining conveys a distorted image of the gospel, and what the gospel does is it clearly shows that Jesus has concern for his children because he died for them, then complaining shows the opposite of that. It could insinuate that Jesus didn't actually secure your joy. If your life is riddled with complaint, then it seems to be a joyless existence because people who have joy... Tend to complain less. People who tap into and realize the joy that is provided through the gospel tend to complain less because they see a bigger picture. And that's, and joy is the root of seeing the bigger picture. If all these horrible things are happening and your response to it is, blessed be the name of the Lord as Job, you have a joy that causes you to see the bigger picture and reduces the likelihood of you being a complainer. Complaining conveys a distorted image of the gospel. Complaining misrepresents a believer's identity in Christ. A believer has been made new. In that newness is new identity, which means this. He has new relationship to sin and to death. A new relationship to sin and to death. Because of Christ, for the believer, sin has no victory and death has no sting. But for the complainer, They don't represent that kind of hope, that kind of identity. The thing that we should fear most, the Scripture says we have no cause to fear because Christ has conquered it. Sin, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The thing that should cause us the most concern, we don't have to face it. We don't have to have that rob our joy. So complaining misrepresents a believer's identity in Christ in that a believer in his newness has a new way of perceiving the world. It's not our home. It is broken, and we are sojourners passing through it. But the complainer doesn't live that way with the recognition that we're just sojourners. Because if someone, as the with the root being joy that's causing them to see the bigger picture, as they're progressing as a sojourner through life, what's happening is they're hitting all these wicked things. They're encamped in this world of twisted and, perverse, uh, twisted and perverse generation. But they're saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And they're offering gratitude and thanksgiving here and there. This is hard. This is bad. This really stunk really bad. This was, this was a, a bad moment of suffering. This was a bad moment for me uh, uh, spiritually or mentally as I suffered in this way. But it says, blessed be the name of the Lord. It doesn't result to complaining, but it rises to thanksgiving Complaining fails to display these gracious truths regarding our identity in Christ. That's that's why it's an offense to God. It fails to represent the gracious truths regarding our identity in Jesus. So it's no benign issue. Complaining minimizes the grace and mercy that has so richly been lavished on us as the church. If the riches of God's grace were shown to us, were so important to us, we would spend more time showing thanks and less time complaining. Complaining can easily convey a false Christ. It conveys a Christ that did not secure our joy because a complaining life is a thankless life, is a life without gratitude. And it conveys a false Christ and a false gospel because it conveys a Christ that didn't secure joy a Christ that didn't secure abundant life for you and for me and for those who are in Christ, a Christ who hasn't given us much reason for gratitude at all. Now can you see why it's not a benign issue, why to God this is an offense, and why God would take complaining? My goodness gracious, the Israelites lived for years, decades, decades in the woods. Any one of us would complain. Let's just be honest. You're eating manna. You're eating bread. Look, if I ate Pop-Tarts for 10 days, I'm going to be frustrated about it. I love them, but it's going to be a struggle for me. For 40 years, for decades, Israelites are passing through living in the wilderness. And you better believe they had climate changes. It was hot. It was cold and all these things. It was tough. There were bugs. There were all that. This is post-fall. This is tough stuff. They had to work. They had to labor. Women were having babies, and that stunk because there was no anesthesia. There is nothing to help them. They just had to tough it up and go, right? So all of these things are going on. So they have all this right to complain. And you and I would do the same thing. But God still responds by saying, you go and I will not be in your midst. I will not be with you because it's not a benign issue. Paul Tripp said this. He wrote a a sermon that I that that I thought was fantastic, and he basically created these categories, saying a a, a complaint based life and a thank based life. And I just want to read three points. I want to explain them or anything. He says he says these are three components of a uh, of a complaint based life. He says it's a life that desires no obstacles. It's a life without any need to trust in God, and it's a life that seeks to find life in the creation rather than the Creator. So how do we apply this? How do we take this and kind of make something of it? So this is what I would call turning our complaint into gratitude, turning our complaining into gratitude. The choice to complain or give thanks, and my understanding is where the rubber really meets the road for the Christian with regard to the sovereignty, to the rule and the reign of God. If you boast... In God's purpose, if you boast in God's plan, if you boast that He's in control, which most Christians do, if that is your mantra, if when you're talking to someone who is suffering, you say, God is in control, God's got this, whatever phrase you use to say, I trust in his sovereignty, then complaining refutes your argument. And you have to understand that because for the Christian, this is where the rubber meets the road. It's easy to boast in the sovereignty of God. It's easy because it sounds good, it sounds right, and it's a safe bet because he's in absolute control. But what coals we heap on our head when we boast in the sovereignty, but we live in complaint because they completely contradict as far as saying that we boast in God's sovereignty. I would argue that in the absence of complaint, this text is pointing at thanksgiving. And the absence of complaint should be Thanksgiving should be gratitude. Not only should we not complain, but we should be thankful. He says you shine as lights in the world. It's not just that you don't complain. It's not just that you say, well, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Walk around with glossy-eyed, staring at at the, the stars' face. You're not complaining, so you're probably pretty good, right? This is let your light shine. And I would argue that the light shining is when, instead of complaining, that it is replaced by gratitude. Paul is saying, Christians live amongst a sin-cursed people in a sin-cursed world. A world filled with the darkness of complaining, disputing, backstabbing, unfaithfulness, and all sorts of ungodliness. To live in such a context without complaint and with thanksgiving is to shine so brightly that no one can ignore it. No one can ignore that. If I'm standing in a pitch black forest and I have a 500,000 lumen LED light and I shine that sucker, you're going to see it from all over. You could probably be a mile away as long as there's not big hills obstructing your view or trees obstructing your view, and you can see it because that's the contrast of light and darkness. And that's what he's saying. If you're letting your light shine in the midst of this pitch black twisted, perverted generation, then people cannot ignore that. They cannot ignore that. So how do we get to a place where our grumbling is replaced with thanksgiving? And I would submit this by laboring to see the positive in all things. I think many, if not most people, are pessimists by default. It's much easier to see the bad in things. And the bad tends to stick in our mind. I can remember a lot of bad things that have happened because I don't want them to happen again. There's so many good things that I just don't remember. And the good things far outweigh the bad things, but that's how we're wired as a tragedy happens, and we do not soon forget if we ever do those things. It takes effort to actively choose to see the positive in all things, like the optimist who jumps off a building and halfway says, so far, so good. The complainer says, I don't make enough money, but the thankful says, praise God, I have any money. The complainer says, I'm underappreciated at work and at home, And the thankful person says, I have a job, a home, and a family. Thank God and praise Him for His grace. The complainer says, I'm not being fed by the preacher. No one said this ever here, but I've heard it before. And I've heard pastors who have had people tell them that. It says, I'm not being fed by the preacher, where a thankful person says, thank God for His grace that He gives me a desire for truth and to grow in His grace through His Word. The thankful are always looking for the opportunity to celebrate the purposes of God. Always looking for that opportunity. And at the end of all things, it is a heart issue. It is a heart issue. What I'm not going to go into today, but if you want to have further discussion about it, that's fine. It would have been great for MCs. I know we're not meeting, but maybe we'll revisit that. But there's a lot of practical steps because here's, here's, here's an issue that if you're like me, you will be facing. Is it ever good? Is there ever a proper context to express a discontent? Is there ever a proper context to express a frustration? If I'm a boss and I have an employee that's not working as he should, is it wrong? Am I complaining? And I would say absolutely not. And I would say it all has to do with the motivation of the heart. It has to do with are you, what are you seeking? Are you trying to achieve something from discontent and out of distrust and unbelief? Or are you trying to do something in order that you might be beneficial to someone or edifying to someone or encouraging to someone? So there's lots of scenarios that we can entertain. But I just want you to to know this because we're out of time, is that at the end of all things, this is a heart issue. And I think it should cause us all to go home and just have some true introspection and think of the things that maybe we are discontented in the things that we get frustrated by and the things that we might complain about and see what they're rooted in and say, God, uproot this nastiness that's that's embedded itself in my soul and has caused these rotten fruits to be produced on my tree, so to speak. And ask God to remove that. But acknowledging it and finding it is huge. Talk to somebody about it. Talk to me about it. Let's start to diagnose these things so that we can Let our light shine as we are in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.